Helen started life as Helen Voorhees, the daughter of a coal mining family in small town Ohio. She married, she divorced, she moved to Florida looking for something better. By her late 30s, she's working at a Miami Beach country club where she meets Frank Brock, the heir to the E.J. Brock & Sons candy company fortune. Thanks to his company's iconic conversation hearts and peppermints, he's a multimillionaire. And soon, Helen is too. In a couple months, she and Frank are engaged, and Helen Voorhees becomes Helen Brock. For almost 20 years, she lives the sweet life by Frank's side. They're happy and they're rich. They have no children, but they have their friends, their houses, and their horses. But all the money in the world can't protect Frank from aging. He's more than 20 years Helen's senior. In 1970, at age 80, he passes away. Suddenly, Helen is one of the wealthiest widows in Chicago. And the wealth that once protected her now makes her a target. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet an eccentric millionaire. The story of her disappearance is full of characters. The gigolo, the houseman, the horse mafia. It almost sounds a bit like a game of Clue, but her life was anything but a game. Her name is Helen Brock. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. For the ultra-wealthy, their worlds can be so divorced from the norm, it seems like they live in a totally separate reality. Often, these are people who don't need jobs. They've hired help around the house and have plenty of disposable income for expensive hobbies. They travel from one party to another, one property to another. And in the days before cell phones, they were sometimes hard to get in touch with. 
simply because they could go anywhere. When someone like that disappears, they might be lucky enough to have extra resources dedicated to finding them. They get more media coverage. There's more pressure for investigators to explore every possible lead. But even with all the money and publicity in the world, they aren't always found. At the bottom of it, beneath all the luxury, the very wealthy are still vulnerable. They're still human. Helen Brock knows she's human. She's always attentive to her health. It's what spurs her to go to the Mayo Clinic for a full physical in February 1977. Normally, it would have been impossible to get an immediate exam at the booked-up hospital. Helen wasn't the only important, wealthy person on the wait list. But she got the appointment thanks to the personal connections of Richard Bailey, her friend, and depending who you ask, also her lover. By the morning of Thursday, February 17th, Helen's finished a week-long visit with America's best doctors, and the news is good. At 65, Helen's in great shape. She has years left to enjoy her dancing, her pastel-colored fleet of expensive cars, and her beloved dogs and horses. Helen should be in a cheery mood as she leaves the clinic and stops to do a bit of shopping in the gift shop. But according to the saleswoman, Helen seems rushed. She's tapping her foot impatiently as she checks out. When the saleswoman apologizes for the wait, Helen says, I'm in a hurry. My houseman is waiting for me. The saleswoman remembers that. Who says houseman? What does that even mean? Is that some kind of butler? In so many words, yes. Jack Matlick, who Helen calls her houseman, has worked for the Brocks for years. First, he was Frank's handyman. After Frank passes, he helps Helen manage the household by fixing things on the property, running errands, and acting as her driver. But today, Jack's not supposed to pick Helen up. She has a plane ticket from Minnesota back to her rambling 18-room mansion in Glenview, a suburb of Chicago. Jack's supposed to pick her up at O'Hare after her flight. It's odd that Helen would say she's in a hurry to meet Jack. If anything, she should be in a hurry to get to the airport. Maybe it was just a slip of the tongue. But considering it's the last thing we have her saying on record ever, it's hard not to take it seriously. After Helen leaves the gift shop, she's never seen again. Later, a Minnesota cab driver will say he might have driven her to the airport. Her plane ticket is used, and Jack Matlick, her houseman, says that he picked her up from O'Hare. But the cab driver can't be sure if it was really her. The airport and plane staff aren't certain they remember Helen's face either. They don't always check ID on domestic flights in the 70s, so there's no way to be sure. And the problems with Jack's statement? Well, there are a lot of them. According to Jack, Helen returns to Chicago on the afternoon of Thursday, February 17th, as expected. He picks her up from O'Hare and drives her home. Allegedly, she spends the next few days in Glenview, although when several of her friends call the house that weekend, 
it's Jack who picks up the phone. And each time, he says Helen's unavailable. Helen doesn't see any of her friends all weekend either. For a social woman who lives to talk on the phone and go out with friends, this is all out of character. It's especially odd considering that, according to Jack, Helen's about to go out of town again. She won't have any opportunity to see Chicago friends for some time. Jack does have his own explanation for what Helen's up to that weekend, which to me sounds like a patchwork story of weirdly specific details. According to Jack, she lays low around the house and goes out on a Sunday night date with an unknown man, one who's never been identified. She hurts her hand when a trunk slams shut, and despite being notoriously health conscious, she decides to treat the hand herself with ice water. She also signs a stack of checks, getting her finances in order between trips, and Jack later takes them to the bank for her. Jack also indicates that they had a fight about a car Helen gave him, which he had sold to pay off a gambling debt, but it doesn't seem like the argument leads to anything further. A little before 7 a.m. on Monday, February 21st, four days after she returned from Minnesota, Jack drives Helen to O'Hare once again to catch a plane to Florida. After years of renting a penthouse apartment in Fort Lauderdale, she finally decided to buy her own condo. She's going down now to get started decorating. Over the course of the next week though, Jack doesn't hear anything from Helen and he starts to get worried. He calls her friends down in Florida and her building manager. No one has heard from her. To Jack, this means something is wrong. On March 4th, a week and a half after Helen supposedly left for Florida, he goes to the Glenview Police Department. He wants to report her missing. They say no. Someone in her family needs to report her missing. Helen's husband and her parents are all gone. So the only next of kin Jack can think of is calling Helen's brother, Charles Voorhees. Charles and Helen aren't exactly close. He still lives in Ohio, but they've stayed in contact over the years and Helen has always been generous with him. When Jack tells Charles she might be missing, he doesn't panic, but he is somewhat alarmed. He agrees to fly out to Chicago as soon as possible and go make the report. That same day, Jack also calls Helen's financial manager, Everett Moore, who is less impressed by his fears. Everett is of the mindset that Helen will go where she wants, when she wants, and she's not obligated to tell Jack about it. However, maybe sensing the urgency in Jack's voice, Everett does agree to come over to Helen's house the next morning so they can talk about it more. This weekend, March 5th and 6th, Jack meets with two people who might help him advocate for finding Helen. And he surprises both of them with an odd request. Everett arrives first that Saturday. Jack leads him to Helen's bedroom and reveals a trove of papers in her dresser drawer. He tells Everett that Helen once told him if anything happened to her, he should destroy the papers. Everett is shocked. He tells Jack to keep his hands off the papers. He's still not sure if Helen's really missing. And if she is, he knows destroying this stash means destroying potential evidence. 
When Helen's brother Charles arrives the next morning, he's equally concerned by the drawer, but for different reasons. He knows Helen dabbles in the occult as a hobby, and he recognizes some of these papers as her automatic writings, which were supposedly made when she was in a hypnotic trance. He also recognizes some of Helen's journals. Jack tells Charles that if the police get a hold of this, they'll release it to the press. And Charles is alarmed. He doesn't want Helen's private life in the news, so he agrees to help Jack burn the papers. It's only then that the two men go to the police and file the official report. Helen Brock is missing. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. When Helen is reported missing in early March of 1977, the Glenview Police Department immediately gets to work on her case. And almost as immediately, they realize that elements of Jack Matlick's story aren't exactly plausible. One of the main detectives on the case, Joe Bauman, looks into the phone records at Helen's house. He finds that in addition to many calls from Helen's friends, all of whom spoke only to Jack, there were a few outgoing calls, calls that Jack eventually admits to making. These calls are strange. One is for a rush order from the department store, Marshall Fields, for a meat grinder. Another is to a cleaning and decorating service. Jack asked them to repaint two rooms and replace a rug as soon as possible. Conveniently, Jack never mentioned any redecorating projects to the police. As for the details he did give, a lot of those prove verifiably false. The car Jack said he and Helen fought about because he sold it, it wasn't actually sold. And the checks Helen supposedly signed, including two for Jack totaling $5,000, weren't signed by Helen. It's not her handwriting. Jack's explanation for this is Helen's hand injury, the one she chose to treat herself after slamming her fingers in a trunk. But a handwriting expert says there's no hand injury that would have made Helen's handwriting look like this. The biggest problem, though, is the flight she supposedly took to Florida. Some of Helen's friends say this narrative is very strange. For one, she told them she was postponing her trip. Plus, there were no flights before 10 a.m., and Helen wasn't a morning person. If she did decide to take a morning flight, she certainly wouldn't have gotten to the airport three hours early at 7 a.m. And as it turns out, she didn't even have a reservation on that 10 a.m. flight. 
According to the airlines, she never boards any plane to Florida, nor does she ever arrive in Fort Lauderdale. Officer Bauman doesn't like any of it. He doesn't trust Jack. But the thing is, while the meat grinder purchase sounds ominous, it's just a blunder attachment. There's no real way to attach it to the case. Likewise, while the house was being cleaned and painted during the weekend, none of the workers saw anything unusual. As for Jack lying about selling a car he obviously still owned, it's strange, but the police don't really see how it connects to the disappearance either. And finally, even though the checks aren't in Helen's handwriting, the handwriting expert admits it's definitely not Jack's either. If all of this sounds like it's spiraling into a dead end, you're right. While Bauman has a lot of suspicious evidence against Jack Matlick, that's all he has. He can prove that Jack's a liar, but not that he had anything to do with Helen's disappearance, which leaves the investigation in a hard place. The detectives decide their best bet may be following the money, considering Helen has lots of money to follow. And when someone as wealthy as Helen goes missing, odds are it has something to do with their cash. But investigators find that this is a dead end too, because Helen's lawyer won't release her will while she's still potentially alive. He's determined to protect attorney-client privilege. Now, this is not a standard decision for a lawyer, especially not once investigators get a court order demanding he hand over the will. But the lawyer holds his ground, even when he's charged with contempt of court. To my knowledge, he hasn't spoken publicly about this unusual decision, but my guess is that it has to do with how much money is at stake. He won't betray his obligations to Helen because she's an incredibly valuable client, even if maintaining those obligations means hampering a missing persons investigation. To me, that's bizarre. I can't imagine choosing to protect money over protecting a person. And I can't imagine Helen would blame him for turning over her will to the police if it helped bring her back. The investigators are just as baffled and more frustrated than ever. But they're not about to give up, not when the papers are hounding them for details about what happened to Chicago's so-called candy lady. So without the will, they forge ahead by looking at the most likely beneficiaries, Helen's charitable interest, mostly related to animals, and her brother Charles. I know, Charles helped burn her papers, which is definitely a questionable choice. But Charles was also in Ohio when Helen disappeared and was on good terms with his sister. He has no discernible connection to the disappearance. It's another dead end. So police try one last avenue, Richard Bailey, Helen's friend or boyfriend, depending who you ask. From the beginning of their investigation, police find Richard Bailey suspicious. First of all, he arranged Helen's Mayo Clinic visit, which is where she was last seen by someone other than Jack. More to the point though, Richard is known around Chicago for serially dating much older women, usually wealthy women. Helen herself is almost 20 years his senior. With his flashy clothes, expensive cars, and fleet of horses, 
He has all the trappings of a suave con man, one who uses older women. But Richard was out of town in Florida at the time of Helen's disappearance. He checked into a hotel the day before she left the Mayo Clinic. He has an alibi. And even if he is a suspect character for the police, the truth is, if he was spending time with Helen all because of her money, he'd have incentive to keep her around. Once again, investigators are right back where they started, outside the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In Illinois, it usually takes seven years for a missing person to be declared dead. And in the meantime, Helen's case goes totally cold. The wait finally prompts her lawyer to unveil her will, and it changes nothing. As expected, a chunk of money goes to Charles, $500,000. The bulk of her money, roughly $19.5 million, goes to establishing the Helen Brock Foundation, which will aim to improve the lot of animals. There is a $50,000 bequest to Jack Matlick, which he never receives, because Helen's estate sues him for various damages, including all of those forged checks he delivered to the bank. He agrees to forfeit the money in return for the estate dropping the charges. Jack and his family leave Illinois for Pennsylvania, where they live quietly. Richard Bailey, meanwhile, goes back to dating wealthy widows. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com running. New Balance. Run your way. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. In 1989, more than a decade after Helen Brock's disappearance, Assistant U.S. Attorney Stephen Miller starts looking into a series of cases involving Richard Bailey. Cases in which Richard conned wealthy Midwestern women out of hundreds of thousands of dollars by selling them horses at inflated prices. They were told these horses were an investment. They were show horses, which could win competitions and earn their owners considerable sums of money. In reality, they were worthless, either because they had undisclosed illnesses or because they never had any pedigree in the first place. Not to mention, the horses were a gateway to other expensive charges. Housing, training, and vet bills, all at stables owned by Richard or his friends. This was no simple financial crime. Richard convinced his victims to buy the horses by gaining their trust and their love. He wined them, dined them, and in at least some cases, slept with them. 
Then, once they thought of him as a boyfriend or trusted confidant, he took these women for all they were worth. Many of his victims were left penniless. Several of them filed civil suits against Richard over a period of decades, which is how they first came to Stephen Miller's attention. Normally, a big-shot federal attorney like Miller wouldn't take on a financial scheme valued in the hundreds of thousands. Disturbing as it is, he deals with cases in the millions. However, Miller knows about Richard's connection to Helen Brock, and if she was a victim of his fraud scheme, then perhaps this is finally the opportunity to break open what's now one of Chicago's most famous cold cases. Miller's thinking is, if Helen found out that Richard Bailey was defrauding her, she might have threatened to go to the authorities. And if a woman of Helen's influence turned him in, Richard might have expected to face real consequences for his schemes. So to get out of it, perhaps Richard kidnapped and killed Helen. In order for Miller to substantiate his theory, he has to prove a number of things. First, that Richard Bailey sold Helen horses at all. He figures that one out pretty quickly. In 1975, Richard's brother PJ sold Helen three horses for close to $100,000, and Richard split the profits with his brother. It's a considerable profit since the brothers purchased all three horses for just $17,500. From here, Miller needs to figure out if Helen knew she was swindled. He finds a lead there too. Arthur Katz, the son of Helen's close friend, William Katz, According to Arthur, Helen and William had an important conversation right before Helen went to the Mayo Clinic. Helen told William she was certain she'd been cheated in a horse deal, and she wasn't sure what to do. William advised her to speak with his friend at the state attorney's office, but any action would have to wait until after her doctor's visit. Stephen Miller can't verify Arthur's account of this conversation because William had passed away by this point, but it does give him more encouragement to keep pursuing his theory. His next move is finding out who else might have been involved. Richard was down in Florida when Helen disappeared, so there was no way he kidnapped or killed her himself. But Richard didn't work alone when it came to his horse scams. He had a whole circle of crooked vets, trainers, and other professionals who helped him convince his victims that his horses were worth buying. And some of them were pretty dangerous people. For example, Silas Jane. Silas Jane ran horse stables near Chicago and was at the forefront of what's often called the Chicago Horse Mafia. This was a loose conglomerate of horse buyers, sellers, stable owners, and their associates, who used violence to ensure their business ran smoothly. When Silas's brother George started competing with him, Silas famously had him killed in George's own home in front of his family. Once Stephen Miller's team starts digging into the Chicago horse mafia, they uncover even more, like a massive insurance fraud scheme involving show horses, and a triple child murder that's haunted the city since 1955. These cases have nothing to do with Helen Brock, but the point is these are the kind of people Richard was dealing with. 
Richard was said to be an associate of Silas Jane, and he bought a bunch of horses from Silas's nephew, Frank. The Janes were his allies, and they were willing to use violence to protect their business. The investigation leads Stephen Miller to another associate of Richard's, a man named Joe Edward Plemons. Plemons is a small-time crook and scammer who circles around the Chicago horse world, and in 1992, he's in jail awaiting trial for selling a horse that didn't exist. Miller goes to him with an offer. Tell me about Richard Bailey and I'll get you a lighter sentence. Not only does Plemons agree, he gives Miller the story he's been searching for. As Plemons tells it, on an unusually mild day in February 1977, he and this other man named Kenneth Hansen got a tour of Richard's stable. Then all three went to lunch, where Richard announced, I'm in trouble. The candy lady isn't so sweet anymore. He wanted someone to, quote, take care of the situation. Plemons and Hansen knew exactly who Richard was talking about, the candy lady, Helen Brock. Now, Plemons tells Stephen Miller that both he and Hansen turned down the job. They are not contract killers, especially not for $5,000, the meager sum Richard offered them. For Miller, this revelation is huge. It shows that Richard Bailey was actively soliciting murder or at least someone was willing to say so on the record. Unfortunately, like all the other pieces of evidence he's collected, Miller finds it difficult to back up Plemons' statement. He can't rely on Kenneth Hansen, who's on trial for a triple homicide that happened in 1955. No matter what he says, he's not considered a reliable witness. And the larger issue is, even if Plemons' story is true, it still doesn't prove that Richard found someone else to kill Helen. Miller is never able to turn up a real smoking gun. But in 1994, after years of investigation, he decides it's time to take his findings to court. He brings 29 counts against Richard Bailey, 16 are fraud-related, and others are for conspiring to and soliciting the murder of Helen Brock. Richard pleads guilty to 16 of the counts, but not the ones related to Helen's death. By pleading guilty to some of the charges, Richard sidesteps a jury trial. Instead, his case will be assessed by a judge at a sentencing hearing. This also means he's officially off the hook for anything related to Helen's disappearance since he didn't plead guilty to those charges. Richard and his lawyers probably think that avoiding a jury is to his advantage. He's an unsympathetic defendant, and if he went to trial, he'd potentially be found guilty of the murder-related charges too, which would carry stiffer penalties. However, and this is important, sentencing trials have a major disadvantage for defendants. The prosecution doesn't have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. They just have to prove that there's a preponderance of evidence supporting their argument, which means it's more than likely that the defendant committed the crimes. In the case of Richard Bailey, Stephen Miller's prosecution team is able to do just that. Richard is sentenced to 30 years in prison for fraud, racketeering, and money laundering. The judge makes it clear that his sentence also reflects evidence that Richard conspired to murder Helen, even though he wasn't officially charged for that, 
Richard serves most of his sentence before eventually being released in 2019 at 89 years old. His days of seducing and conning women are behind him, but Helen's case is still full of holes and loose ends. The reality is, nearly 30 years pass without a clearer picture of what happened after she left the Mayo Clinic, at least until 2005, because that year, Joe Edward Plemons goes public with a second story about the Helen Brock case. This is what he claims actually happened to her. As Stephen Miller suspected, Helen decided to expose Richard's horse con schemes, which would have led investigators far too close to Silas Jane. In response, Silas puts together a seven-man, one-woman crew to murder her. The woman uses Helen's plane ticket from Minnesota back to Chicago. Meanwhile, Jack Matlick, also one of Silas's recruits, picks up Helen at the Mayo Clinic by car and drives her home to Chicago. When she gets home, another of Silas's men beats her to death. When it seems she's still alive, Joe Plemons fires two point-blank shots at her, finishing the job. The house is repainted just to be safe. Then, conspirators drive the body to a steel mill in Indiana, where they incinerate it. The story adds up. It explains why Helen told the saleswoman in the gift shop that her houseman was waiting for her, why Jack acted so strangely during the initial investigation, it also clarifies Jack's involvement. He might not have had a personal motive to kill Helen, but Silas gave him a big financial motive. It also ties up the wildest side of the story that newspapers and news anchors could never get past. Her disappearance did have something to do with the horse mafia. And as Miller suspected, it even had to do with Richard Bailey. Plemons affirmed that his original statement was true, Richard did solicit him to kill Helen before Silas got involved. And while Plemons wasn't sure, he thought Richard might have still been involved with planning Helen's murder, even if he was in Florida during the killing itself. I want to step back though and point out a big caveat here. Like nearly all the evidence related to this case, Plemons' story has no one to corroborate it. By 2005, most of the people who he says participated in the murder plot are already dead or in prison for other crimes. I also think it's important to note he was only willing to give an official statement after he was granted immunity. People involved in the case have different opinions on the testimony. Some believe it, some don't. Ultimately, nothing concrete has come from Plemons' confession no convictions, and still no verifiable evidence of what happened to Helen Brock. To this day, Helen's case isn't closed. Despite all the trials, books, and public fascination that her story has garnered, it hasn't resulted in that justice. The justice of truth, of answers. Wealth, influence, they might make your life look like something outside of the realm of human vulnerability. They might give you access to top-notch lawyers and motivate dogged investigators like Stephen Miller to look into your case. And frankly, in a lot of cases, that's what makes all the difference in solving it. 
but Helen Brock's case serves as a reminder. When it comes to missing persons cases, everyone is human. Everyone needs help. Everyone needs advocacy. And even when a case seems like it's been cold for too long to yield any more answers, if we keep looking, we might still find a little more truth. Next episode, the wife of a wealthy real estate heir goes missing in 1982. More than 30 years later, documentary filmmakers find new evidence that just might solve her case. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Nora Patel, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.